Hey everybody, welcome back to Beyond the Peloton podcast. I am Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going to go over uh, just a little bit of the Tour de France route. I think probably everyone's heard about that by now, but kind of discuss if uh, Andrew's theory that Remco Evenepoel is definitely going to be there is correct. And um, are we going to see Mark Cavendish on a team and at the Tour next year? And then a little bit of transfer rumors and news at the end. Andrew, do you want to say a quick bit about your own podcast, Choose the Hard Way, before we get going? Yeah, for sure. So Choose the Hard Way is a show where my guests share stories about how doing hard things build stronger, more resilient humans and how you can have fun doing it. And if you're listening to this, you're probably one of those people who subscribes to that philosophy. Uh, some of my recent guests have been Dr. Kevin Sprouse, the head of medicine and team doctor for EF Education First Easy Post. And this week, I just dropped an episode yesterday with journalist Ian Dilly, who used to head up cycling over at Flow Sports. Really amazing long form journalist. So please come check us out, choosethehardway.com. And we are on every platform where you listen. Also on YouTube, we just launched a video as well. So please come check us out. Great, great podcast. I uh, recently listened to the Kevin Sprouse interview. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lob a few questions back at you from that. But Andrew, let's actually, let's start with this little bit of transfer news that just popped up on my screen as we were getting ready to record. Um, Jay Vine, I think we all remember him from the Vuelta, kind of breakout star for Alpes and Phoenix. Just fine, signed for UAE Team Emirates next year on a two-year deal. I'd imagine he was already under contract for next year with Alpeson. So the fact that he's leaving his contract to go over to UAE, I'd imagine he is getting a significant pay raise. He was saying during the Volta this year that he uh, was excited to win a stage because it meant he got a bonus and could buy uh, cappuccinos instead of just black coffee. So I'd imagine this is a welcome pay bump. Um, this is actually a little like a little subplot that I'm putting together. I do like a weekly transfer analysis uh, for my newsletter during the off season. And one thing I noticed is like UAE before, even before the signing was having like a really amazing transfer season. Same thing last year. Um, they're, they're kind of building the team from the ground up. They're getting rid of the pre Tade Pogacar stars that they kind of signed when they first became UAE. Um, they're flushing that out of their system and bringing on some really strong riders, both to support Pogacar at the tour and then have uh, competitive teams in the other grand tours. The thing I. Uh, the question I have for you is, uh, would, would, you, would, would you like to join UA team members? It seems like we could probably get contracts. They're signing everyone. But uh, do you think Jay Vine is going to do well there? Or is this going to be a situation where someone, I, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but someone gets paid and then you kind of don't see him again? Well, Spencer, I don't want to diminish my market value because I think it's late in the signing season, but there's still a chance that I'm going to the world tour in 2023. But I did have a low back injury, perhaps raking leaves in the past week, which I've disclosed to you. So any rider agents out there looking for a new signee? Yes, I do. Maybe I'm damaged goods at this point, but I still think I'm a strong contender for a 2023 contract with UAE. Uh, this Jay Vine news. So Jay Red Vines. Wow, I guess they were not giving him access to the Nespresso machine and the team bus. And now we see him jump ship. Strong signing. And the first thing that I thought of when I heard this news, which was as you said it, and now I'm looking at the headline, is I'm thinking about everyone who said that Jonas Vinigo 
was going to win the next three tours. Just all the big talk that we hear following a Tour de France victory uh, or that Remco Evenepoel is going to win the next three tours, whatever. The fact is Tade Pogacar is going to win the next Tour de France. I think that's what's going to happen. People doubted that UAE would make the moves that they needed to make to bring the talent on board that they need to win the tour. Will Jay Vine go big? You know, I think he's going to go big as a support rider, and we're going to see a much deeper bench at uh, UAE Team Emirates in 2023. And can he do that? Yes. I think this is an incredibly hungry, youngish rider. You know, he's coming straight from the uh, metaverse to the world tour. We saw him have huge impact. And I think the only question, as we've seen in the past, are people who are snipers who go out there and take down stage wins the way we saw Jay Vine to do so kind of spectacularly at the end of the season. Is he going to be content in that support role? Spencer, we know what you get paid when you're a high-level climbing domestique. And I think that he's going to be quite happy and it's going to work his butt off. What do you think? Yeah, I think Sepp Kuz is the model here. Um, everyone who is not Sepp Kuz is always thinking, oh, he should be his own, a leader in his own right. And I think Sepp Kuz looks at his paycheck every month and thinks this is pretty good. I get to try to win stages every now and then. and But mostly I just help uh, my, my amazing teammates that seem to come out of nowhere and become Tour de France contenders. Uh, I think Vine, like that's got to be the model for him. He seems like a really pragmatic guy. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say after winning a stage, I'm excited about the money this is going to give me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't think he's going to have any problems with this role. And what's crazy about UAE, they spend a ton of money. They they on paper had a great offseason last year, and they did bring in guys like Juan Ayuso, who's got third at the tour at 19 years, or third at the Welta at 19, which is crazy. Uh, but they didn't like think about the the zero. There's nobody. I mean, they 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 brought on Adam Yates earlier in the offseason, which I had already forgotten. So clearly, they're trying to bring on you know riders to bolster the the shoulder Grand Tours that Tadej Pogacar isn't doing. I'll, I love the signing. I think Vine could have a career. You know, not only just helping Pogacar at the tour, but you know, having you know, we all know Adam Yates is maybe not the most consistent rider. Like if he's at the Giro with Adam Yates, he could easily find himself as a leader. So I think he'll find plenty of opportunity in the margins. One thing I'm now wondering about, I got a, I got a note late last night that said, don't publish your weekly transfer analysis yet because UAE has a big deal in the works. And I heard it was Nairo Quintana. So I, I went to bed thinking, oh, Nairo Quintana is signing with UAE in the morning. Um, and now I'm wondering, was this the deal and Nairo Quintana is not going to UAE? It would kind of make more, this makes more sense than bringing on an older fading star who does not, I know people think Nairo can be a domestique. He's not really ever proved that he's interested in that or even shown any interest. So this could make more sense. Now I'm wondering if, if Nairo is going elsewhere. Um, what do you think? Would you, would you bring on Nairo if you're a UAE or it seems more of like a hotel B&Bs type writer to me? I feel like I may have refreshed my browser more recently than you have, Spencer. Did you see the Nairo Quintana news that just dropped? The that the court of arbitration confirmed his suspension, or is there something even newer? No, no, that's the newest thing. Yeah. Just he he was appealing. They dismissed his appeal. I, I didn't understand the appeal because 
he, for those who don't know, he had tramadol in his system at the tour, which is banned by cycling, but not banned by like the world anti-doping agency. It's pretty cut and dry. I mean, it, it makes me, it brings up a lot of questions for me. Like, so you knew this was illegal and you just took it anyway and you hoped for the best, I guess. I don't quite understand his logic there. And then he appealed, you know, the A and B sample both tested positive for the substance that's clearly banned. There's not really any wiggle room there. Um, I didn't quite understand what he hoped to get out of that appeal. Maybe he wants another slot on Dancing with the Stars in Columbia. I don't know. But if I was a desperate team, I think I'm pushing forward even with the even, you know, because he loses. He's not suspended. He just loses his result from the tour last year. You know, if I was a desperate French team, I'd probably still bring him on. I agree. But yeah, why why did Arkea get rid of him? Do you think what's going on with that? He's dead weight. He probably massive salary. As we know from sources familiar, Nairo continued to have this delusional belief that he could go win the tour and he's a rider who can go win some big mountain stages which is awesome but for what they were paying him i don't think they were getting the return that they wanted and they wanted to clear the bench right single-handedly save them from relegation because he had a pretty good season he got six at the tour that's not winning obviously but it, it kept them out of relegation so yeah maybe you're right they just figured well, this worked out pretty well for us. It's time to move on. They've kind of secretly or quietly built a pretty strong squad outside of Nairo. So yeah, maybe they thought, yeah, we don't want to deal with this guy anymore. We got what we need from him. This is an, an amazing situation or like an amazing opportunity to part ways with him and just went ahead with it. I, I don't hate the move from them. Yeah, I don't hate the move either, either. And I think that that's spot on. I think they were waiting for the opportunity to do something that otherwise organically would have been a bit higher friction to achieve probably. Yes. Yes. Um, and I, I stepped on you. You were saying something before I jumped in. My mind is open and free right now. It's gone. gone. So Tour de France. So, so you, it's done folks. We don't even need to talk about the route. Andrew has released. He spoiled the tour 2023. Tadej Pogacar is going to win. I I don't totally disagree with that prediction. Um, But the roots was released last week. Um, Outside of being, it's it's basically, it's kind of a funny route. It's, it's in, starts in the Basque country, beautiful place. Um, it's going to be great stages. I, I'm very excited they're doing that. It just starts with a hilly, difficult stage in Bilbao. It's not a normal foreign start where it's just a bunch of sprint stages. And then it just there's five main mountain state or mountain ranges in France, and it basically just traces along those mountain ranges all the way to Paris. There's one time trial on stage 16, and half of it is uphill. It's 22 kilometers with 10 kilometers uphill. On paper, climbers route. In reality, I don't think it matters since anyone who could win the tour, think Tadej Pogacar, think Jonas Vindegaard, Primus Roglic, Remco Evenepoel, they're all equally good in time trials and climbs. So I, I don't think this affects them at all. Um, it's kind of strangely concentrated. Just it, I, I described it as it's basically the decar- demarcation line between Nazi and free France during World War II. It just cuts right through the middle of the country, doesn't even try to attempt to be a tour of France. It's just a tour of central France. Uh, Christian, Christian Prudhomme, Christian Prudhomme, the director of the tour, has like an allergic reaction to long flat stages, transition stages, time trials. So 
he thinks he's just cutting out all the boring stuff and giving us the exciting stuff. It's my opinion. I express this in my newsletter, so it's not a secret that this is probably going to be pretty boring because with no time trials to separate anyone, everyone's going to sit tight thinking they have a chance to win. And we're going to be, I mean, I, I maybe am being a little overdramatic, but I'd almost say schedule your, your, uh, your summer vacations for July because you're just going to be able to check in on this uh, every now and then and you're not going to miss anything. What, what was your takeaway, Andrew? Am I being overly pessimistic on this route? When it comes to the GC battle, maybe you're correct. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I think if the 2022 tour taught us anything, it's that we're in the cycling 2.0 era, which we've talked about a lot this year on Beyond the Peloton. And yeah, just looking at the profile of the course, what I'm thinking about, like even in those first four stages, I'm just thinking about what uh, seemingly illogical things some of the writers might do and what kind of action might happen that it's very difficult to conceptualize as we think about this rationally because so many things that felt totally irrational happened in the 2022 tour. Do you think it's possible we might see that same kind of chaos in 2023 or do you think that's done? All they th- say yes, there will be chaos, especially in that opening week. I mean, we're going to see bananas stuff. I think mainly between Van Aert and Vander Vanderpool. Uh, this is a great, great opening week for them. Um, people are writing off, you know, it's like, oh, there's no long time trials, so Wout can't compete. But if this, if Wout was going to compete in a tour, I this would, seems like the one because I don't know how they came to this conclusion, but the tour said, you know, long, really difficult mountain stages, overly difficult mountain stages are boring. They blunt the race. We're not going to have them in this route. But if you go back to 2022, wasn't that most exciting stage the hardest one? It was the, um, it was like stage, what was that? Like stage 14 where Primoz was attacking Pogacar like 70 kilometers from the finish with two HC mountains left. And then that's what blew up the race. Outside of that, it was kind of a milquetoast GC battle. So I don't totally understand where they came to that conclusion, how they came to that conclusion. But without those really, really like overly difficult mountain stages, I'm kind of wondering, like, is Wout a sleeper favorite on this course? Because he can put so much time into people if they're, you know, not paying attention or just asleep on some of these hilly stages or medium hard mountain stages. You know, that that is an interesting thing. I'm especially I'm looking at stage 14, descent into Morzine. Like, you know, what could an attacking descending rider do on that? Like Pagachar or Wout, you know, they could they could put time into the rest of the people. So you know, may, maybe there is room for craziness in this route. Spencer, just looking at the sequencing of stages from a rhythm point of view, part of what typically happens is you have hilly or flat stages, then you get into a big chunk of mountain stages, and you're there for a bit. That's where the decisive action is happening, and then maybe you go to a TT and a flat stage towards the end of the race. But the sequencing of the stages here, I think, is quite interesting. And I think you're right. The level of difficulty might just result in an overly fatigued Peloton heading into week three versus that being a high action, high consequence week where the GC is actually decided. But when I'm looking at the sequencing of stages, what's jumping out at me is that it's going to be harder 
for riders to get into the rhythm of the race, I think, because it's always shifting back and forth more frequently than we've typically seen from mountains back to hills, back to flats. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, like I'm just looking at stage one, two, both hilly, stage five, six. Those are all hard. So four of the opening six stages are hard. You're going to see guys like someone who we think is a favorite is going to lose minutes on those stages. It's just going to be like a punch to the gut because the race is going to start so hard. And it, it, yeah, and if you are kind of off kilter after the opening few stages, it's going to be really hard to get into a rhythm because it, it's almost like they just threw stages at random onto a wall and then put them into an order just randomly. Like it, it does not follow a normal tour rhythm. The, the thing I'm worried about is the last four stages, three of them are sprint stages. I'm not quite sure why they did that. That seems so you have the TT on stage 16, mountain stage, stage 17, mountain stage, stage 20, but then 18, 19, 21 are probably all going to be sprint stages. You know, that's going to be a little, I feel like anticlimactic as, as we go into the finish. Strong chance of that happening. Similarly, I'm just looking at stage three and it's a coastal route. I would like to know more about what the wind profile of this stage might be because on, you know, on paper, it's a flat stage. Seems like, okay, this is going to be a procession to a bunch sprint. I wonder if there might be a wind element that results in echelons and maybe the race blowing apart in an unexpected way, or if that's something a savvy team could force at some uh, point on this, this route. So I think, there are details like that that will, uh, you know, we would need to get into wind analysis to take a deeper dive here. But I know we're going to talk about Cav in a moment, but he's been talking about, oh, there are eight very clear bunch sprints that are going to, no, there aren't. I, I it's don't not, know where it's not going to, it's not going to happen, Cav. I think four, Sorry, buddy. four tops with, with a yeah. lot of them in the third week. I think the tour has, there's, especially after last year, which was very hard on traditional sprinters. They're showing a pretty clear disdain for the old school, you know, line them up sprinter who can't do anything else, aka Mark Cavendish. Um, it, right. It's almost as if they're trying to keep him from breaking Eddie Merckx's stage win record. Yeah, it could be. I'm also thinking about week one, days one through four. By stage five, Caleb Ewan's chance of getting a stage victory i want to say are over probably is this going to be the tour when caleb gets his next stage win at the tour or is he going to be shut out through 2024 he's got to win stage three because he's going to crash in that first week i mean <laughs> a one that looks good is stage seven into bordeaux but now that you mention it it's kind of exposed could be a lot of crosswinds that might not even be a sprint stage it might be a gc crosswind day well yeah and after back-to-back Mountain, mountain stages, stages yeah right if you're a sprinter you're surviving those two stages although everybody has to be able to be a pretty exceptional climber now even more so than they had to be historically to get through the race i do think obviously caleb ewan will be successful in whatever he does for the rest of his life um, like top class person good rider but this upcoming tour is probably make or break for him as a top level sprinter i mean if he cannot get back on track. Yeah, he's kind of been off his game since COVID. 
since like the COVID break in 2020, then you might have to start having a serious conversation if guys like, you know, Jasper Phillips and the younger sprinters who are maybe a little bit more like Scott McGill, our guest on next week's podcast, um, you know, are maybe the future of sprinting versus the more rote sprinter like Caleb Ewan. Which stage is Mahorich going to win? Man, it, you know, so let's do that. He always wins the longest stage. So I'm looking at stage two, 209 kilometers. That is a, that is a, a doozy of a stage, folks. Uh, it's, that's like a classic in the middle of a Grand Tour. Um, I think that's him right there. Stage two, he's got it. Lock it in. Unless it's like this year where he doesn't win any stages and actually never looks good at any point in the race. So um, also, obviously, or also stage 18 longer hilly stage later in the race that has Mohodorich written all over it maybe we see him go down to 28 centimeter bars this year that can make all the difference <laughs> yes that's the new thing. Be the year just hope there's no turns on the course i'm looking at the course for any turns so you think tade pagacha has got it in the bag i don't disagree with with the uh additions they're making the team's going to be really strong i think that was his big weak point this year you also seem to think Without a doubt, Remco Evanapol's going to this race. Do you still believe that? I still believe. I think it's clear beyond a shadow of a doubt that all of the Patrick Lefebvre rhetoric is just theater, just keeping staying in the news. Spencer and I have talked about this off air. We're not totally sure why he says some of the things he says or what benefit they provide to sponsors like specialized or if they're actually detrimental and he has stayed in the news and he's kept this theater and suspense going around whether Remco's going to ride it's been hilarious to me to I mean even Eddie Merck said yeah he should go to the Giro next bike Twitter is up in arms they're like yeah he needs you know he needs to go do another grand tour to get prepared to do the tour de France and it's not 2014. I, I don't think that that's what's going to happen next for this writer. He's the world champion. And he just yeah. won, I think, the Vuelta. If you look at the past 10 years, the winners of the Vuelta are far superior to the winners of the Giro. It's the harder Grand Tour. It's the more prestigious Grand Tour than the Giro. So he's going to take a step back? I, I don't understand this at all. I think, yeah, people are, are out of their minds, lost in time, not realizing we're in cycling 2.0 with this thinking. That's yeah, he's going to the tour. So you're on board. Yeah. I mean, and there's also like Lefebvre can seem to be just like a crazy person that has diarrhea of the mouth and just says whatever he wants. But there's also, you know, there is a language Lefebvre ease where, you know, I went back and I listened to him during the Vuelta where he was giving interviews and they're saying, is, is Remco going to go to the tour? And he's like, no, no, because he's going to Giro and like, why? Because it is the plan. And, it, you know, you can almost hear him laughing when he's giving the response and then he was really banging the drum after that that no they won't go to the tour they're going to the zero and then now he's started to walk it back saying well maybe he will go to the tour like if you look at you know pat and patrick lefebvre might be a i might not like him personally and disagree with his views on the world but he's good at he rarely makes bad selection decisions um he'll often throw people off the scent for reasons unknown but the, the results kind of speak for themselves. He, you know, I think a lot of people didn't like the decision to leave Cab at home last year, but they got a stage win with Fabio Jakobsen. It's not clear to me they would have gotten a stage win with Mark Cavendish. So he generally makes the right decision, and you can kind of start to see him to turn this 
tanker, you know, this, this oil tanker out in the middle of the ocean. It's moving very slowly towards Evanable going to the tour. Um, and, and maybe Patrick knows what he's doing. Like maybe just saying at the Vuelta, Remco Evanable is going to the Tour de France would have been um, like over sensationalized in the Belgian media. So he's just trying to keep things on a simmer until we get closer to at least the start of 2023 to introduce the possibility of, you know, the best Belgian GC talent probably since Eddie Merckx and the current world champion going to the biggest race on the calendar. He might think he needs to introduce this slowly to, um, to Evan adoring fans or, and adoring haters. So like the guy, he's a very polarizing figure. Maybe it would be too explosive if he just came out and said, yeah, he's going to the tour. We hope he wins. No pressure, Remco. Don't choke over the off season. So, you know, there could be a uh, like a method to this madness, but whatever ha- whatever is said, Remco's going. Uh, I'm totally on board board with your theory. Yeah, part of the Lefevre method generally seems to be to convince riders that they are great and they are replaceable, and I think that's perhaps part of what's happening here. And as we know, other teams were courting Remco and his dad trying to get Remco to leave the team. So I wonder if part of what Lefebvre has convinced Remco and his dad of is that, yes, you are a great writer. Yes, you're a generational talent. The tour is in your future. And also, maybe you're not quite ready yet. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's a... He'd be wrong with that assumption. Like, Remco could go to Ineos tomorrow, you know, for more money than he's currently making. I think Pat, you're right. Patrick Lefebvre makes writers know they're replaceable and he's 99% correct in that. He's not correct in that in two cases throughout history. Tom Boonen was an irreplaceable talent that it seemed like he did start to, it seemed like he, he kind of treated Tom with like a love and adoration. He did not treat the rest of the, the team with, I would say Remco is up there with like ir- irreplaceability or as close as it gets. Um, you know, maybe, maybe behind the scenes, he's just kind of capitulated like, hey, yeah, you guys are going. Don't worry about it. I'll sit. And then that that's part of the walk back. But, I, you know, he can try to brush back Remco and say, I, you're, you're not more important than the team. But at this point, he kind of is. I mean, he could go anywhere he wanted to go. Yeah. I, I don't, it seems like a risky strategy. But someone like Julian Alaphilippe, very good rider, double world champion. You know, he gets like. Lefebvre gives him shit in the press and kind of lets him know he's not bigger than the team. And I don't know if he's totally incorrect in that assessment. Assessment, And I think his way of dealing with Philippe has produced results, so I can't really argue with it. Yeah, I would agree with you. Remco is not replaceable. And he, yeah, this isn't a Sam Bennett situation or a yeah. Cavend- Cavendish situation, right? Yeah. But there's always some drama. We just know that this is, for whatever reason, this is how he works with his talent. And maybe, I mean, I'm like, I, I've spent the last few days since our convo trying to like be more charitable to Patrick Lefebvre, but maybe he thinks by making the conversation about him that he takes pressure off of his own team. You know, that it's not, we're not talking about what Remco Evanipol is doing right now. You know, like the parties he's going to in Ibiza and whatnot we're talking about his team manager so maybe that's part of the calculation as well that he just like turns the death ray of belgian media attention to himself could be so you mentioned it mark cavendish perfect segue 
Is he going to be at the tour in 2023? Is he going to find a team? He's currently unemployed. Does not have a ride for next year. I think he's definitely going to be at the tour. And I think without having any specific information about this, I, I just have to imagine that specialized in Oakley won Cavendish at the tour. He has that, you know, at 37, he's starting to take on that Jens Voigt patina and they need him there. They're not quite ready to put him out in the gravel pasture yet. And there's a chance that he'll win one stage. Yeah. And that's where, yes, you bring up a great point that it's not as easy as I, th- I think a lot of, you know, casual fans are like just sign with the team already. And like, they're going to take you to the tour. Why would they not? But he has to thread a very thin needle here, or I guess, you know, walk a thin line, however you want to say it. Because if he joins a team, even as big as Arkea, you know, there's riders on Arkea that could, you know, have their own objective for the tour. And Arkea might think, Hey, Cav, you're, you're good. What you've done is great, but we don't want to put all these resources towards maybe winning one or two stages out of a total of four sprint stages. We're going to go with another rider. We're not going to take you to the tour. He doesn't want to find himself in the same position he found himself in this year. Yeah. It's really only a handful of teams. One of them being uh, ho- team hotel B and B or team B and B hotels, I think is the name. Um, every time I see a and b hotels, I want to stay in it. So the sponsorship is working if you guys want to know that, but that's a team with like, they're so bad that I was wondering during the tour, like, should they sign Annemiek Van Vluten? Like, should she could be getting in these breakaways that they're not able to get in. So there's no one on that team that's going to push him out of the tour. Um, it's worth the risk for them because they've never won a world tour race in their entire existence. Like if they won one stage of the tour, that's awesome for them. Like they're happy with that. So I think that's the team he's holding out for. They haven't secured funding for next year. Um, hence the fact that they haven't signed Cavendish yet. But he really doesn't want to find himself in a position of signing for someone and then get being left out on the outside looking in because there's just not that many chances for him. There's not many stages that he can win. Um, a question posed to me, I, 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 this is what I do now. I go on Swift group rides and just chat to people about cycling. It's a sad existence I leave, I, I lead. But if Cavendish goes to the tour and Remco goes to the tour, Who's the bigger story? Like, is Cavendish the headline story of the tour next year if he goes, even though he can only like really play in five or six stages? If you're watching the race on Peacock, he's probably the biggest story of the tour. The real biggest story of the tour is definitely Remco. And I can just see if Cav makes it there, I believe he will. Then this becomes one of the major storylines that Bob Roll and Christian and Chris Horner are talking about ad infinitum for sure. What about GCN? Is there any respite for us over there? Or is that? Oh, uh, no, show? I don't know. It's going to be the cap show. You're right. I don't know what I'm thinking. Uh, maybe on the, yeah. We'd have to get yeah. a continental feed because you're right on the continent. Yeah. It's definitely Remco versus Tade versus Jonas. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the U.S. and Britain, it's definitely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in uh, Britain tomorrow. I'm going to start, I'm just going to start asking people on the street who they yeah, think that's the a, story is. It's a good idea. And I'm Spencer, check me here. Am I overstating the importance of Cavendish to specialize? Because looking at B&B hotels, they are presented by KTM. If he were to go there, do you see them dropping KTM and specialize coming over the top? I think they have. Or does, does, does he not have that? I feel like he does have that Sagan level 
relationship. I haven't checked a specialized website, but I feel like you can probably get, you know, uh, a tarmac SL seven cab edition with green chain stays or something. Yeah. Yes. This is a very good point. This could be part of the reason for the delay and like the canceled team presentation, because just imagine Cavendish wins a stage breaks Eddie Merck's record for most tour de France stage wins in history. Specialized. That's a, he's on a specialized bike for that, right? There's no way he's on a KTM bike for that. I have to imagine Specialized is going over to B&B Hotels if Cavendish does, and they're booting KTM to the curb. Um, KTM might object to this, um, and there might be some back, you know, backroom legal arguments going on right now. Yeah, they're just going to have to go back to chainsaws and farm equipment, probably, if that's the case. And that's one of the stranger companies. I mean, it's very, it's like the most Austrian company ever. It's just like, we make farm equipment and motorcycles and bikes for reasons unknown to anyone. I actually rode a KTM for like two weeks in August. Pretty, pretty good bike. My review, pretty good. So, but Cavendish isn't going to be happy on that. I mean, he's, remember he was not on a specialized for a few years and claimed that that's the reason he wasn't winning. And, and obviously that's not true. Like all these bikes are fast. They're just big chunks of plastic um, with wheels that are all the same. So you're, you're fast on whatever you're on. But if you don't believe that you're fast, you're not going to be as good. So I think he needs to be on a specialized. Yeah, I agree. I also wonder, I'm just looking at the team roster at B&B Hotels. He seems like the type of rider, I mean, this could probably be said of many riders, but of sprinters in particular, they have to have a very high level of trust with the lead out men they're going into a finale with. And I'm just like cruising through the list here and thinking about who is going to be in that lead out train. I think they would need to bring people in and that also could be part of the the holdup. Yeah. And I don't, um, based on his past few seasons, he wasn't until last year. I don't really feel like he was in the position to do a Sagan and get COVID five times and bring 12 riders with him into the team. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know who he would bring with him. I wonder if there's a lead out man from earlier in his career that's at another team they're trying to snag or I hear what's it's going Max on. Max Richese, who was on okay. UAE for Gaviria, I think. Okay. And he's not been retained by UAE. Um, so he's floating, floating out there. He's old, though. I mean, Cav's going to be 37. He's got a lead out man pushing 40. I mean, none of this is scream everything's telling me like this isn't going to go well but i've learned long ago not to bet against mark cavendish i think you're right spencer and i think that's one of the things people might not realize about the lead out train and the lead out train it often disintegrates but you need three ideally three four riders in those final 10k to get you up into position to then fight for the sprint and there's a lot of LT VO2 max effort. But then once you get to your last guy, he actually has to be an outstanding sprinter because he's sprinting. He's just not sprinting for the finish line. He's sprinting to get the sprinter in position to then sprint around him in the last, you know, 250, 200 meters. So you, that guy has to have a lot of snap and has to be a world-class sprinter too. They're just not sprinting for the finish line. Yeah, we saw at the last edge of the Vuelta, Pascal Ackerman's lead-up man beat him in the sprint. So clearly, yeah. a great sprinter. 
Yeah. And the last guy is the most, like, you're right. Most like 99% of sprinters need three or four riders just to get them in a position. Cavendish is so good that if you remember back to the sky days, they weren't giving him any resources and he had to sprint by himself and he did pretty well. You, you generally need at least one guy though. So they will need to bring in minimum one lead out rider and it, you're right about the rest of the roster. I don't want to be unkind to anybody, but it's not of the level that, like, if you remember, they were getting dropped from, they got dropped by Magnus Court on the opening stage of the tour on, like, a highway or, a, like, an interstate overpass in Denmark. So, and not at the level that you would need to get someone in position for a sprint, a high-level sprint. To be fair, the grades on those highway overpasses are pretty steep in that region. But uh, I'm joking. Yeah, I mean, we're pushing three, four percent on that for for twenty seconds. <laughs> I, I I was like watching the game. Like Van Vluten does not get dropped on this. And for those who know, Annemiek Van Vluten is the top female rider in the world. Like they should just bring her on. Like what what could she possibly cost? She's got to be cheaper than these guys. Absolutely. So Spencer, I know you've got to get that rolly bag packed so that you can go do that direct action surveying of. Uh, British citizens to see how they feel about Cavs chances. What, uh, what other thoughts do you have here before we wrap it up? I, <laughs> I don't know. We don't want to like give away too much, but we interviewed Scott McGill, um, interviewed to be released next week, hopefully. Um, and for those who don't know, he's like a domestic American racer who kind of came out of nowhere, made it to the breakaway at the world championships, uh, like the world championship road race, um, in Australia. Uh, last month, two months ago, whatever. And, you know, we talk a lot about nutrition on this podcast, especially during the tour. We were like going deep on nutrition, um, the glycogen to something ratio. Um, we, we came in hot with, with Scott. We were, we want to know what's your nutrition plan? How did you approach the seven hour race that was super difficult? And he basically told us he eats whatever he can get his hands on and does not stress at all about nutrition. Um, was that, how, how are you feeling post that? Are, are you shaken or are you thinking, oh, if if someone like McGill, who doesn't think too much about nutrition, got on a, a more dialed plan, he would be even better? He's like the Randy Macho Man Savage of pro cycling. You could hand this guy a couple of Slim Jims and he would run through a wall. It was remarkable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about being nutritionally flexible, which is you know, tune into the episode. You'll hear more about his approach and why. I, I've heard that from some other professional athletes, but in general, what we've seen in the sport, I mean, remember the stage where I'm not going to remember which stage it was, but uh, it was the most important stage where Pogacar was dropped in the finale. And there was a lot of speculation about like, did he miss a gel? Did he miss a feed? Because he wasn't able to get back to the team car and get bottles because of all the action that was happening. And so much happening right now around these elite riders training their guts so that they can just 120 to 160 grams of carbs per hour. If you remember earlier in the year, Matthew Vanderpool's, uh, I think it was a photo of his stem, a tour of Flanders maybe, where it had his whole feeding schedule. And he was up to 160 grams of carb per hour. So it's considered this critical aspect of the sport now and why these riders are able to go so much faster, which I think all the more reason to tune in and hear what Scott McGill had to say and the approach that got him into the breakaway 
at the world championships, which was remarkable. It was a breakout ride. He has big things out of him yeah. for sure. That was, that was stage 11 where Pogacar got dropped. I, I also think that's because he didn't eat enough. And I think, yes, we saw the limits of like chill guy mentality that like, you know, maybe sometimes you do need the Vanderpool stem reminder to eat because it can cost <laughs> you. But if you're not a GC rider, maybe it's not as important, right? If McGill bonks in a mountain stage next year, it's, it's not catastrophic for him in the way that it is for a GC rider. Um, and Andrew, I just remember one thing to finish the podcast. You you had the hottest of all takes that I've heard this year that Jonas Vindegaard, not only will he never win another tour, he'll never race another grand tour. You think this guy is melting down, uh, collapsing at the seams. One thing I noticed about the... I, I don't agree with you, by the way. I think Jonas is a man of steel. I think he's going to be great at the tour next year. But... One thing I noticed, Tour de France route reveal, all the big riders there in the world, no Jonas Vindegaard. A little curious, I thought. Curious indeed. And I think that like Tom Dumoulin and a lot of other riders at the very top of the sport, the not a lot of other riders, just we've seen this in cycling. We've seen it in other professional sports where having the level of talent and dedication to achieve something like winning the Tour de France doesn't mean that you are equipped as a human being to handle fame. It's a totally extraordinary, not normal experience. It's not for everybody. And I, I don't think that that's going to change for Jonas. And I think we'll see how the spring goes and whether he shows up at the Tour. For now, I still don't think he's going to be at the Tour. It's, I, I thought that was crazy certifiably insane but that is a little strange the defending champion just ghosting the tour de france presentation it doesn't give me the the biggest vote of confidence um and also i now that i'm thinking about it he was not strong at the beginning like basically until the tour he was strong he just wasn't unbelievable if he has the exact same spring and early summer that he had last year this year it's going to be a problem because people are going to be up in his face like why aren't you good what's wrong what's wrong what's wrong you know and it's just going to be a level of pressure he didn't have last year and he could just totally fly under the radar go into that tour with no pressure and win it so that, I mean, that's definitely never going to happen again for him and that could be a big problem and he now knows how it feels to win the tour de france and the feeling that i get from watching what happened after the tour is that he didn't particularly enjoy what came with winning the tour de france I'm not sure how a rider is going to be motivated to go as deep as you have to go in training and in competition to win the tour if, in fact, they don't enjoy the byproduct of what happens when you actually achieve your goal. Yeah, I also wonder how much of that could just be being Danish. Uh, I've, oh, I always have a hard time reading Vindegaard. I don't, can't really tell what he's thinking or if he's enjoying anything or not. He's just kind of a stoic guy he could be having the worst day of his life or the best day of his life and we kind of have the same external expression maybe he just needs another gel it, but he also has a teammate i mean the thing where i think this gets complicated is primos roglic is going to want to try to win the tour next year like that that's going to be an interesting dynamic inside the team i think that that's maybe been a little underplayed and how does Jonas respond to that and what happens when wow actually has an opportunity and is in position to win the tour, which very well could happen. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's some unanswered questions with that team going into 2023. 
Yeah. One thing is for sure. I'm going to try to stay at around 160 grams of carb per hour at my desk today while I continue <laughs> to create world-class content and promote the Ian Dilly episode of Choose the Hard Way. I think that that's what's going to really push me over the top today. That I might, I might supplement with ketones. I haven't experimented with that yet. That's going to go well, very well. Highly recommend Awesome. It. Well, Fantastic. thanks, Andrew, for joining us. And yeah, keep an, an ear out, an eye out in your feeds for the uh, McGill interview coming out next week. <laughs>